Maybe you've noticed there are many different personalities within the body of Christ. And Pastor Ed Taylor reminds us God wants to use us no matter what our personality type may be. See, it doesn't matter what kind of personality you might have, strong, weak, you know, passive or aggressive or, you know, the, the types of, you know, maybe you've taken personality tests, I'm A type, B type, Z type, whatever, or whatever types they are. It doesn't matter. With the hand of the Lord upon you, you know, with, with you who you are, God will use you who you are and give you what you lack so that he gets all the glory. This is amazing grace. We've got a great time in the Word ahead of us today on Abounding Grace. Hope you can stick around from start to finish as Pastor Ed Taylor opens 2 Kings 3. Well, we study the Word every day here at Abounding Grace, but how do you know the Bible is reliable? Maybe you know of someone who is quick to question its authenticity, or maybe that someone is you. Today, Pastor Ed will give us four very good reasons to trust what we find from Genesis to Revelation. Dig the ditches. Now, our study through the book of Kings has been a pretty sad study as we watch the leadership of the nation of Israel make great errors and much failure and sin. I mean, we saw it most with Ahab and Jezebel. Now, it didn't start out that way. Those of you that were with us in our beginning study in 1 Kings, remember 1 Kings opened up with Solomon taking the throne. And there was a united, unified kingdom under God, the way that God de desired in order to follow him. However, even in its best condition, the rulership of the nation by kings was at best God's second best. Because God's desire in rulership over us is something known as theocracy to be ruled over by God. But you'll recall that the people wanted to be like the other nations. They, they wanted to have the kind of prestige the other nations had. They demanded a king. They, they wanted everything that came with a kingdom, like armies, like power, like money, like prestige. They rejected the leadership of Samuel, as we'll see in a moment. Even though God warned them ahead of time, you don't want a king. And isn't that true in times in our lives where God will warn you ahead of time? You don't want this, but you go after it anyway. You don't want this. This is not going to be good for you. And yet we've got this perspective. No, I've got it all figured out and it's going to be really good. And we figure, you know, no, you don't want this. Well, well notice what Samuel says in verse 10 of chapter 8 in 1 Samuel as not only did they reject Samuel, but they rejected the will of God for their lives. They rejected the warning of God. And so he says, he says, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them in his own chariots to be his horsemen, 
Some will run before his chariots. He'll appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his, for his chariots. Verse 13. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, bakers. He'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and his servants. And he'll take your men servants and your maid servants and your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your sheep and you'll be your, you will be his servants. In verse 18, you'll cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the, of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. Now we're many years here in 2 Kings chapter 3, we're many years past Solomon and the condition of the people has not improved. After Solomon died, the kingdom divided between Rehoboam and Jeroboam and it remains divided all the way through its history. In 2 Kings chapter 3, we find ourselves with, introduced again or reminded of Jehoram. If you want to pick up with me in verse 1, notice it says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And here's the summary of his kingdom. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he did put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father has made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. Even though his name means Yahweh is exalted or God is exalted, the summary of his leadership is both he did evil, and, and the comparison is this, oh, he did evil, oh, not as bad as his dad, but he's evil nonetheless. And that's often a mistake that we make, isn't it? We look at our behavior, as bad as it is, and then somebody might say, hey, you know what, bro, you're like, that's evil. And then what's your response? Well, you know, I, I'm not as bad as, and then you name the worst pers possible person you can think of. Like anyone compared to that person isn't as bad as that person. But it doesn't mean your evil is anything less. He did make a good decision, but the summary of his, of his leadership wasn't repentance. It wasn't, he completely went the opposite direction of his dad. No, it says, in, he describes it, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam. And I have to just say, there are some listening to me right now that are following in these footsteps and you are persisting in those sins that are in your life. You're, the, the idea behind persisting isn't that you're, you know, they're always coming up and they're, ever, they're, they're occasionally there. No, you're willingly, purposefully choosing to hang on to that sinful behavior. 
Even though all around them you've justified, made excuses, you know, when you compare to so-and-so, yeah, you don't look that bad, but when you compare, you and I compare to the high calling of Jesus Christ, we all fall short. It really depends on which way you want to look. And the Lord is just calling you to stop persisting in that sin. Lay it aside. Even though you improve a little bit, go all the way. Jump in. Notice verse 4. Now Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. And it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. After the death of Ahab, this king in Moab seizes an opportunity to say, I am now no longer giving my best sheep and wool to the king of Israel. And he rebels. He no longer wants to pay tribute. Uh, What was called tribute back then, the word that we use today is the word taxes. And you can tell how, you can know how he would feel if you got the opportunity to go, you know what? Uh, There's a change in the IRS, and I refuse to pay taxes. Now, of course, if you make that choice, you take things into your own hands. Uh, They still have a a place that they place people like that in. It's called prison. And so the government doesn't take kindly to that. not, Not now and not then. And he was tired of having this heavy burden of taxes between him and Moab. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because from this little text, with a little bit of research, this is a powerful, there's powerful insight from this text here as it relates to the reliability of the Bible. One of the things that is undermined and attacked and criticized the most is the Bible. And when the Bible is criticized, you may wonder, well, how do I explain that? How do I answer such a question? You know, one of the greatest evidences of the truthfulness of the Bible that you hold, the translation of the Bible that you hold in your hands, that is a true and accurate translation of the original autographs, one of the greatest evidences of its truthfulness is the enormous amount of evidence found in archaeology. In archaeology. Now, actually there are four keys. If you want to jot them down, I'll give them to you. And then I'll give you the number you can look up on our website to find the Bible study that we did in depth on this. But for the sake of our time tonight, there are four things. And the way that you can remember the four pieces of evidence that help solidify the truthfulness of the Bible is this, just in the back of your Bible, almost all of our Bibles have maps. If you remember that word, you can remember the four things. The M stands for manuscript evidence. The A stands for archaeological evidence. The P stands for predictive prophecy. And the S stands for the statistical probability of all of those things working together. So manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence, predictive prophecy, and statistical probability. Now, if you go to our website, calvaryaurora.org, and you type in the number 14357 into the search bar, it will take you right to the Bible study where we looked at all of this in depth, all four points. Uh, I think it was a Bible study I entitled, You Can Trust Your Bible. So the, the number for that is 14357. It's a study in John chapter 13. 
But suffice it for us tonight, the archaeological evidence is very important. The Bible is a book that's rooted in fact. It's rooted in history. It names names, times, lands, leaders, and a whole host of concrete, time-stamped, verifiable facts. Because of that, over and over again, men and women have set out to disprove the Bible by using it as a tool for expeditions to prove what's in it. It's like if they turn over and say, well, wait a minute, what about Moab? Where's proof for Moab? And where's proof for the king of Israel? And yet with every spade that's turned, with every dig that's done in the name of disproving the Bible, they come away with proof. Another confirmation of the Bible's truthfulness and accuracy. And it's really a wrong thing to say archaeology proves the Bible. It's more accurate to say the Bible proves archaeology and have it in the right order. Now, there were things that are found that if you go with us and the time that we spend in the Israeli museum, it's a fascinating, the stuff that they found and have put on display. And we've seen the same thing at the British Museum, and we've also seen the same thing at the museum in Athens, in Athens, Greece, where all of these things that they found, horned altars, Canaanite idols, inscriptions with, that say the house of David, are just some of the Old Testament finds. When we go on our tour, we go to the synagogue that was found in the literal town of Capernaum, the city of Bethany, where the Pilate Stone has its name on it. There's a facsimile right on the water and the real ones in the museum. And, and they just opened a brand new dig right on the Sea of Galilee that we tour now. And they found the ancient city of Magdala right there on the water, right where the Bible says it was. It was Sir Robert Ramsey that set out to disprove the Bible and his finds as he went out searching for these things from the scripture were used by God to give him a new life. He was born again by his attempt to disprove the Bible. Powerful, the archaeological evidence. And it makes sense that if you go out and look for the places that the Bible mentions, that if it's a real document rooted in history, written by God, that you'd find the places that says that they're in there. And you'd find them in the places where they would be. And if a, uh, an enemy country was named, then there would be evidence for that country. Now, some might listen to this and go, well, wait a minute, Ed, they still haven't found such and such. Just keep looking. Just keep looking. Don't ignore, you know, millions of pieces of evidence because you found one they haven't found yet. Why don't you dedicate your life to go find it and then report back to us? as you're also examining all of the evidence that has already been found. And it makes sense that we would find people, that we would find places, we would find objects that conform to the biblical narrative and we have. Now, why is that important here? Simply because this rebellion that's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 3 is mentioned in something called the Moabite stone the Moabite stone. It's the largest inscription that we possess currently from the earliest parts of the monarchies of both Israel and Judah. And as one commentator wrote, and I quote, it demonstrates that the people of Moab also spoke Hebrew, although they worshiped Chemosh and not Yahweh as their great God. It describes, this Moabite stone describes how Misha threw off 40 years of rule by Israel inaugurated by King Omri by fortifying the northern border towns, 
It makes no mention of the awful measures the end of the chapter mentions by which a final Israelite withdrawal was affected. But it's possible that Misha's triumphal celebratory inscribed stone was set up after his success in the north, but before the rigors of the southern campaign. Yet we may want to pause again before reading 2 Kings 3 as a simple historical record. And over and over again, archaeology proves the scriptures. And if you're writing notes down just there in verses 4 and 5, you can just write a little note, Moabite stone, historical verification. Pick up now in verse 6 with me. So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on the roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. Verse 10. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So King Jehoshaphat was a good man, but a man who could easily get himself into situations that he shouldn't have. Because this is almost the same language that King Ahab used to get him to dress up like him in the previous battle against the Syrians. We call, we call someone like a little bit naive or gullible that doesn't quite see what's happening, but rather rushes in and just has that genuine spirit about him, wanting to help. While Jehoram is panicking, Jehoshaphat wants to hear from the Lord, which is always good in the midst of a time of anxiety or panic, that whether it's you or someone close to you that just says, let's just seek the Lord. Let's just pray and lay this before the Lord. It reminded me, you can jot it down in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. I'll read it to you from the New Living. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. If you do this, you'll experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Those of you that memorize this probably know it more as be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request be made known to God. That's similar happening here where he's requesting, hey, we need to hear from the Lord here. Is there anybody, just calm down, is there anybody that speaks for God? And they say, well, Elisha. And I like how Elisha is described. He's described as the one that poured, in verse 11, the one that poured water on the hands of Elijah. And really, that's a symbolism, as we'll see later. It's a symbolism of servanthood. He's just known as Elijah's servant. Even though now he is a prophet of God in his own right, he was a servant and, and one that's known as someone that served. I love that. 
A similar thing is, is said of jo- Joshua when it relates to his, uh, when it comes to his relationship with Moses, that he's described as Joshua as Moses' assistant, just someone that was serving and faithful and available and teachable and spiritual, all the qualities of servanthood here. So they send for Elisha. Jehoshaphat says, the word of the Lord is with him, verse 13. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts live, Before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Have you ever felt that in worship? Have you ever felt the hand of the Lord come upon you as you were singing? And like in no other way. And it doesn't even have to be in the company of believers. You, I, could, I could think of those times where just in, in that time of devotional, just me where the house is quiet, I quietly sing a song that God inspires from memory, and I begin to sing over my devos, and I just sense the hand of the Lord coming upon me. That presence of the Lord. Like he has a special word or a special direction or a special comfort or a special encouragement. And, and here is Elisha. He looks at Jehoram and goes, you know what? I don't have anything to do with you. You don't even, you, you don't worship the one true God. Why don't you just call upon, you know, it's like Elijah when he was up on Mount Carmel. Go ahead and call on your own gods. And yet because of Jehoshaphat, I'm going to call upon the Lord. That's encouraging. I mean, there's so much in this text, so much in this chapter. I mean, here's the decision that, that you make. You know, what, all the time you, you go through the study in the Old Testament, you go, what's the relevance? What's the relevance? Man, it's everywhere. So let me ask you a question. Who do you want to be? Jehoram or Jehoshaphat? In this particular situation, who do you want to be? I mean, even with Jehoshaphat's faults and even with his failures, God redeems it, puts him in the place of Jehoram so that Elisha will speak the word of the Lord to him, that, that, there, that he has favor with the prophet. I mean, I, I can answer it for you. I, I don't want to be Jehoram. I don't want to be out going after false gods so that one of the prophets of God go, you know, I don't want anything to do. Go after your own false gods. Instead, he's like, man, because of Jehoshaphat's here, I regard, it says, verse 14, the presence of Jehoshaphat. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't even look at you. <laughs> That's some pretty strong words. Because Elijah, Elisha is not like Elijah. Elijah was a rough guy. He, he was a, a man that was an outdoorsy kind of, you know, Elisha's not like that, but he, he's able to speak. See, see, it doesn't matter what kind of personality you might have, strong, weak, you know, passive or aggressive or, you know, the, the types of, you know, maybe you've taken personality tests. I'm A-type, B-type, Z-type, whatever, or whatever types they are. It doesn't matter. With the hand of the Lord upon you, you know, with, with you, who you are, God will use you who you are and give you what you lack so that he gets all the glory. Because, you know, if you're a stronger personality, for you to confront someone, you can take the credit for that. That's kind of how you are. And yet, if you're a weaker personality and you say something strong with someone, and then you go home and go, man, what was that all about? What was that all about? You know, what happened there? And you go, man, that was the Lord. 
He overcame my weaknesses. He overcame, which is what he wants to do constantly. Hey, thanks for taking part in today's study from 2 Kings on Abounding Grace. All of Pastor Ed Taylor's teachings can be heard again online at calvaryaurora.org. We'd like to suggest adding a couple of apps to your mobile devices. They are the Calvary Aurora and Grace FM Colorado apps. This would be a great way to study the Word in the new year. Do a search for Calvary Aurora and both apps will come up. See if this sounds familiar. You make a New Year's resolution to break a bad habit once and for all. And maybe you experience some short-term success, but then that undesirable behavior rears its ugly head again. Is it really possible to break the cycle of addictive behavior? And if so, how? Erwin Lutzer points the way in his insightful book, How to Break a Stubborn Habit. You'll discover it is possible to break a stubborn habit with God's help. Get a copy of this helpful book as we begin 2019 when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more. As you do, you'll be helping us continue delivering God's Word on this station in the year ahead. Call toll-free at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. Or go online to calvaryaurora.org. You can also write to Abounding Grace, 18900 East Hamden Avenue, Aurora, Colorado, 80013. We'll pick up where we left off in 2 Kings tomorrow on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life. That I would be set Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado. 